right. This episode is part two of Scott and Jessica's story. Scott was diagnosed with bipolar one disorder in 2010, and Jessica had to assume the role of both spouse and caretaker. This provided unique challenges in their marriage that they address on this episode of Mental Illness and Me. So were you on medication since that 2010 hospitalization? Is that when medication started for you? Yeah, and I've changed medications multiple times. And so it's been a it's been a journey to get to the right combination of what works and what hasn't, and what's caused all sorts of things um, to happen. Like sometimes the medicine is well, kind of the reason I'm having problems. It's interesting because then in in 2014, when he was hospitalized again, we were in the middle of changing medication. Right. Almost every time I've had a hospitalization was it's because been we were related to medication. A medication switch. Right? That it makes. Just, that makes total sense. Yes. And so in in changing this medication with with a doctor, um, it just did not go well. That time you were hospitalized for 10 days. Mm-hmm. So it was a longer hospitalization, but it was still the same in that it was more depressive. That was pretty difficult. But then after you got out of the hospital, they had you do a partial hospitalization program Mm -hmm. you hated that program because Because you just wanted to get back to life this is something i would say to anyone who's listening like you need to advocate for yourself because counselors don't know as well as you do when you're ready to move on right especially like in this program this is not a counselor that you had already met with before your illness but the interesting thing was scott wanted to leave this program and you were like i am ready i just need to go back to work this is that would be the best thing for me and they wouldn't let him Mm -hmm. it was weird because we didn't understand how to stop going and finally I talked to his regular psychiatrist and she's like, well, you can just tell them you're done. And so finally Scott's like, I'm not coming anymore. And <laughs> that, which was the best thing. The funny thing about that, the last session, the last day I ever went to that program was the worst day in terms of my symptoms. I was perfectly fine until that last day. And I was literally like almost unconscious as they're doing this group thing I had to like sit there with my eyes closed for the entire hour because I couldn't actually participate in the activity because I was so anxious so so this is kind of another life lesson like it gets worse before it gets better but you have to advocate for yourself in my last hospitalization which has now been almost four years ago or almost five yeah almost five almost five years ago which is the longest period of time i've gone without an episode you know as jessica would come visit me and we would meet with the doctors to come with it up with a discharge plan you know we came up with a plan and i remember saying okay the nurse came in and i said all right i'm going home today and she says to me no you're not and i got very well paranoid still that they were going to keep paranoid me there. that they were going to keep me longer and then also like the sensation of like surprise and anger surprise but I kept my composure and said, okay, all right, I'll, I'll stay another day if that's what you think. But again, you kind of have to learn how to advocate well, for yourself. Well, and it kind of came to the point where he was there almost two weeks. Mm-hmm. It's like every time he's gone, it's gotten longer. Mm-hmm. But it got to the point where it was going to be our son's first birthday. Right. And we knew, me, his parents, even Scott knew, 
it was going to be even worse if he was going to be in that hospital and miss that birthday. It took us 10 years to have a baby. This was our first baby's first Mm -hmm. birthday. And it was already killing him to be gone for so long. In fact, we got special permission to bring our son to visiting hours in a special room one night. I also thought that they were coming to tell me that they were taking him away from me. Oh, I didn't know that, (laughs) man. Well, but it was... in a, in, a, in a twisted way, because I, I was grateful to see him, but like I also had that paranoia that, oh no. And this is the other thing about paranoia that you have to understand. If you've never experienced paranoia, it didn't matter if you could tell me I was okay. I, I n- just knew that you were being sarcastic and you meant the opposite. There was no way you could tell me that I was okay, that I could understand and feel it. Right. Because, because I was just paranoid. It must be so frustrating as an adult Mm -hmm. who has feelings and emotions that are valid and real, but Mm -hmm. who also has a condition that is sometimes out of your control to have people kind of boss you around or not really listen to (laughs) what you're trying to say. I'm I'm talking about the nurses. I know, know, but I boss them around too. Oh, frustrating too. (laughs) Again, the truth is stranger than fiction. Guess what the name of my nurse was? It was Jessica. So it was like, oh, you've got a new wife and she's going to treat you very poorly. Because this this woman, I, I'm sure she was very sweet, but my perception of what was happening was she was rude to me. She was mocking me. And I remember um, she said to me, because she was, it was late at night. I was trying to sleep in my hospital room and she was a very talkative, chatty person just talking. I couldn't sleep. And we had just been talking about in therapy about assertiveness and like speaking your mind assertively, but not angrily. And so I went and tried to practice this assertiveness therapy. And I said, ma'am, would you mind? I, I'm really trying to sleep and you're really loud. Can I, you, would you mind being quiet? And she says to me, okay, buggy. Oh. Yes. And what, what, what she claimed she was saying when I said to her, what did you say? She said, okay, buddy, right? Buddy, right? And, but I knew, I just knew that she was saying buggy because I had talked to my son, that was his nickname, on the phone that I would talk to him earlier that day. I had, I had said, goodbye, buggy. And so I just knew that this nurse was like mocking me and calling me buggy instead of buddy, right? And like, that's how <laughs> certain I was that she was mocking me. Paranoia just comes on so suddenly. Um, but I want, I want to say, since I haven't been to the hospital, knock on wood, in five years, um, though, that doesn't mean I haven't had an episode. But I finally gotten to the point where with the support that I have from Jessica and her experience in knowing how to talk me through some of my thoughts and allow me to ask questions and think through some things. Like, for example, at this time, you know, I started feeling like, oh, I had um, the devil around me or if I felt like I was possessed and I felt really like dark and cold and I said to Jessica, I feel like I'm being possessed or the devil's around me. And she says, I don't feel that way. And when she said that to me, it kind of gave me this freedom to say like, oh, well, maybe maybe I'm not possessed. It, it empowered me to question my own thought process. I just assumed that whatever I thought was true. You're kind of like a team now. Yeah. I mean, you've been doing it together for 15 years. So now, like you said, you kind of have a rhythm. Yeah. Uh, Jessica knows the cues. And, and we know what cause, we know what can, can lead to some of these things coming on, like staying up late or not getting enough sleep. Right. Um, or, you know, not eating well. Like all those things can contribute to it. Or if I'm, 
if I forget to take my medicine a couple days in a row, like that can cause problems. Um, also, if I get like too heavily engaged at work, like if I stay up late working on, you know, technical challenging problems late into the evening and I do that several days in a row, like that can that can get my mind into a situation where it's difficult to um, get back to reality. Right. What do you want people to walk away from listening to this episode having learned from your unique story? The answer is I want people to feel hope. I want feel, people to feel like it may be a life sentence, but it doesn't have to feel like a life sentence. Like you, you may never get over this, but you can, you can learn to cope with it and you can learn to have victory over it and not let it rule you. And it takes patience. It takes time. It takes humility. What I want people to take away, at least as a caregiver for someone, not only is it really important for the person with the mental health issues to have the support that they need, but it's really important for the family and the caregiver to also have that support system. Mm -hmm. Um, the last time that Scott was hospitalized, I had a one-year-old and, you know, you could only go visit him at 7.30 at night and I had a baby who needed to go to bed and he was in a hospital an hour away. And I had so many people from church who helped me. I had family members who came to help me. And we've talked about moving in the past and I just keep telling him, like, I can't move farther away from family. And I also don't want to move away from our great support system here, because if he goes into the hospital, I know that I have friends and people who would just run over to help watch my kids so I could visit him. It's just really important to have a support, a, a network. And that's really difficult to do when you don't let people know that you need the help or that there is a mental health problem. The stigma is real. One time when he was hospitalized, no one at church said a word to me. It's almost like they didn't want to, they didn't want to say anything because they, they thought it would, they just didn't know how to respond, mm -hmm. which was strange because if, you know, he had been hospitalized with a surgery, it would have been talked about really freely. So, I mean, it's, it's a delicate balance in being respectful to those who are struggling and what they want, but also just being open enough to get the help that you receive. And um, also, Scott mentioned earlier, just to be your own advocate. You just really have to be your own advocate you because there have been many times where I've had to say, no, he's coming home from the hospital now. Or, no, this this isn't working for us. Or just even, no, to, to family members or friends, like, no, actually, that's not really the issue. Mm -hmm. um, right. And and it's really hard. It's I, I won't lie. It's been very, very hard. But there are hard things that everyone goes through. And this just happens to be ours right now. Jessica mentioned that we had 10 years of infertility. And that is a part of my mental health journey as well, because for a time, I believed that that infertility was a punishment from God for my poor behavior. And I had to learn that that was not the case. It was just a, a true struggle. But it did add to the depression. It added it added the whole element of sadness. Uh, but now that we have these kids, like 
um, it was it, it became even so much more important that I stay healthy because I need to be around for these kids. I need to be able to. And if I, you know, heaven forbid, if I get hospitalized again, like, how are we going to do this? We have three kids now. I've had a I've had a time of intense anxiety myself when we had to switch a medication for him in the middle of just a, a crazy time yes, for us. It's, it's, again, and I advocation. had so much anxiety about him switching the medication because up until that point, every, every single medication switch led to a hospitalization. Right. I remember sobbing at church and telling my friend, like, I can't do this. I cannot have him hospitalized right now. I have two little kids. I can't. It might break me. It mm -hmm. might ruin me. You know what? It, the the switch went great. Mm -hmm. It's a better medication anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but it was it was a real fear of mine. Absolutely. Yeah. It's and not I, something that you say, oh, that'll never happen again. Oh, no. We know that it probably will. We plan on it. And we, we make contingency plans. And we, you know, I remember the last time I was hospitalized or thought I was going to be, um, I remember packing a bag and getting my my sweatpants and taking the the string out of them. Um, so I, at that point, I realized that I was getting to the point of responsibility of having been through this enough that I could be prepared. And that's and you know that's a true principle for for life. Like if you're it's in the scriptures too, right? If you're not if you're prepared, you don't need to fear. But like that's something that I've tried to to learn about. Is like okay, let's let's be as prepared as possible. Well, and it turned out I didn't end up going to the hospital that time. Yeah. But and I the other prepared. thing too is that we thought about like okay short-term disability mm -hmm. insurance right like when they offer that as something with your job sometimes mm -hmm. places will offer that we've made sure that that's something that mm -hmm. we are signed up for or pay extra for mm -hmm. putting more savings away um yep. understanding that you know you know you you might need more than a month of savings to, to make it when he was last hospitalized, he was working at a job that mm -hmm. like didn't really have vacation or sick time. And so we just didn't have paycheck. Mm -hmm. And we yeah. were very fortunate to have family members who helped us out. And it was a huge blessing that we are so grateful for. It's also interesting to note that the last time he was hospitalized, the doctors told me, we don't really think he totally fits bipolar disorder, but we don't have a name for really what he's dealing with. So they treat it. They treated so the like, paranoia. We'll, we'll treat it as bipolar, but with psychotic features. Mm -hmm. Which I was like, "Well, that sounds lovely." Yeah. You know? <laughs> and um, so I remember calling a counselor um, to try to set up some therapy for him. But now we feel like, okay, we know that this could happen. We need to be prepared for it when it happens and i he, she said well what's your husband's diagnosis and so i said bipolar one with psychotic features and she was like oh and i got off the phone with her and i just cried and cried and cried because i thought you're a counselor you're a therapist this is actually talking about self-advocacy because i didn't know what psychosis was when they would ask me are you hearing voices or whatever um I had to learn that, no, I actually wasn't hearing voices, but the thoughts in my head were so intense that it felt like I was hearing something. Right. And so once I finally understood that, no, I'm not actually hearing anything audible, like I hear someone talking to me, it's just a very strong, intense thought. Then I was yeah. able to advocate, explain to the doctor that, you know what, I, I used to call this that I was hearing things. I used to answer yes to that question, but I don't think that's actually what's happening. And that finally helped him understand. 
there was one other thing that the doctor said to me that helped me in terms of understanding myself and what was going on. When he talks about psychosis, he says that, you know, psychosis is his definition that he used was the inability to accept a mutual consensus of reality. That's how he explained it to me. And that, that made sense to me because it helped me cope with my paranoias because it allowed me to like check in with other people like, hey, do you feel the same thing that I feel? Are you thinking the same thing about this situation that I'm thinking? And if, you know, if the majority of the people were saying like, no, that's not what's going on, then it helped me like get a grip, yeah, so to speak. So what does day-to-day -day life look like for you guys now? Day-to-day, -day, I mean, there are some very real side effects to medication. One of the biggest ones that we deal with every day is Scott's sleep is terrible. I'm insomniac. So he's like an insomniac, but then he sleeps in really late. Yeah, I've had the fortune of being able to talk to my, I've had to talk to my boss and say, you know, I'm not going to be starting my day at nine o'clock. I can't start my day till 10 because I'm not getting to bed till three o'clock or four o'clock. Well, even when you were getting to bed, yeah. it's just, he's almost like so medicated that it's mm -hmm. very hard for him to yeah. get going. That has been the fight of our marriage mm -hmm. is get out of bed, Scott. Like, especially now that we have kids, mm -hmm. I'm up all through the night and then at the crack of dawn with little kids. Another thing that's caused, caused problems for, for stress for Jessica is one of my coping mechanisms for the anxiety has become this like relaxation and ignoring it. Whereas before I used to be like hyper vigilant or like if something was needed to be done or sometimes if like if the kids are acting up and that's causing me stress, I will just avoid it and ignore it. And it causes problems for Jessica because she's left having to discipline. Like today we were at the restaurant and the kids were running all through the restaurant. She was up ordering food so she couldn't really chase after the kids. I had to chase them. So I grabbed them by the arms and I'm dragging them and I realized I'm dragging my kids through a, through a restaurant. I need to stop. So I, <laughs> so I sat down and just let my kids keep running. And it was hard for Jessica to, you know, to accept that that was my choice because, you know, like I wasn't doing anything, like I didn't care. And I would say the other difficult thing day to day is when Scott is having a hard time or released from a hospitalization, mm -hmm. I have to take on pretty much everything, mm -hmm. paying the bills, doing just everything, which is fine with me to be involved with all of that. But it's almost like it comes to the point it, where if I, I don't want to be his mom. Yeah. And if I'm getting needs... to the point where I'm feeling better and I want to be involved with like sorting out the budget, like Jessica it's... can get a little uptight if yeah. I'm, if I've gone ahead and paid a bill without telling her. Well, because, because I yeah. have it all managed right. and I've had to do it by myself because he's been hospitalized mm -hmm. or out of it. And so then when he wants to come re-engage, it's hard for me to know where to pull back or how to pull back and be more of a partner than like a, like a caregiver. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so that causes a lot of discord at times because... You know, if I'm t yelling at you to get up in the morning, which I don't want to yell at anybody mm -hmm. to get up in the morning, but if I'm saying, hey, I need help, it's, I feel like I'm trying to wake up my teenage son who's right. sleeping it, in. It's, sometimes late. the relationship becomes teenage kid to his mom. And it's, I don't like and that. it's not good. That's not no, healthy. that's not good for marriage at all. Yeah. But there are real times when he cannot function without someone just taking care of the needs and saying, okay, why don't you go rest? Or, okay, mm -hmm. why don't you do this? you know, when he comes out of the hospital. So when I have to 
have to ease off of that and be a partner again with him, that can be hard for me to yeah. give up the control or, or mm-hmm. to even know when to do that. Right. And because his health can fluctuate, you know, between hospitalizations or since being hospitalized, mm-hmm. yeah, he's doing great, but he's been having terrible sleep. So mm-hmm. now it's, it's just a very interesting way, give and take. Yeah. There. That's something that's never really resolved itself. It's something that she's and she and I have had to deal with our entire marriage is my, sometimes I'm there, sometimes I'm not. And, and she, the, oh, the, the fact that I have at any moment could go back into an episode is on her mind in the back of her mind, at least. Like the other day I was, I said something like some, we were at Friendly's getting ice cream and this guy walks in and he starts singing to the radio and said, oh yeah, I should go talk to that guy and sign him to my label. <laughs> and I was like, wait, wait, are you okay? Are you, like, you don't, you don't have, have a label, a label. You... and I don't have a label, but I have this, I am a musician. And I have this fantasy dream that someday I will have a label. So right. I just, yeah, so I wasn't, had to but she had that. to check. She had to check. Oh, are that's you okay? Funny. You know? And I didn't hear him singing either. Right. So I was thinking, are you hearing? Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's so. always like a check-in and, and I have, I have had to learn to allow her to ask me that question. Kids can In get the offended. past, I would get offended that I can't just live my life and have an, have an aspiration. Like, like every aspiration has to be checked or like, are you manic? One thing yeah. I love as I talk to you guys is I just love how open you are with yeah. one another and with me and also that you can kind of laugh and joke about it a little bit, but also you understand the realities. I think that that's really healthy and it's something that we don't have enough of when it comes to the mental health dialogue. I have to say, I don't, I don't have any friends or anyone really that I interact with or know that has this that talks about, I mean, I'm sure I know somebody, but they don't talk about it. And right. so it's really, it can be really lonely when you feel like, am I the only person whose husband has these super religious, psychotic episodes because it's, they're so unique, but it can be, yeah, it can be really hard to talk to anyone about because it's, it is stigmatized. One of my employers, um, I had to tell him, hey, you know what? I need to take some time off work because I'm in the middle of an episode. And I had to tell him I am bipolar one. And like, you don't ever want to have to disclose that in the job interview. Um, You don't ever want to have to disclose that to an employer, but actually it helped me to be able to do that. However, the employer, my, my boss was completely shocked that I have that disorder because in his words, you're normal. You're like, you're normal. Like, cause he had another family member that was bipolar and his, you know, explanation of his experience with bipolar was that woman is crazy. Like she's the crazy person in the family that no one wants to talk to. So he was just totally shocked that I had worked for him for a year and was a great employee for him. And then all of a sudden I'm asking for time off because I have an episode. He's like, what's going on? And so it is this stigma that you know, people think that people with bipolar are crazy. And that's like, that's actually yeah. a very rude thing to say to somebody. Oh, he's a crazy person. Right. Well, and to interrupt rude. you, yeah. one yeah. time after his first hospitalization, we went to a bipolar support group. Mm-hmm. And that was a really interesting thing mm-hmm. because there's such a broad spectrum of what it can look like. Yeah. Especially when you're not taking care of yourself. Mm -hmm. And so we would go there and there were a lot of people attending this group 
but they weren't always consistently taking their medication mm -hmm. or they didn't have any support right. elsewhere. Now, something that happens with people who have bipolar is some people also self-medicate with alcohol and drugs. Yes, and yes. So in some of these support groups, you do see people who, who abuse drugs and alcohol. I've been blessed to have not had that complication, but there are other people who have that as part of their condition. And so you will see in some of the treatment groups and some of the hospitalizations, you will see um, alcohol rehabilitation patients <laughs> in with right. the bipolar people because, and I, I've, I've ended up attending Alcoholics Anonymous a couple times <laughs> at, at the hospital because I kind of in my mental health was like, well, I may not drink, but I might also have, you know, addictive behaviors that, you know, going to the support group might help me. So I would, I would drop in on the AA sessions. At, at one point I thought that it was a, a secret society and like, Oh man. Anyway. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I just, I just think um, day to day as the, as much as I feel victory over having, you know, avoided a hospitalization, you know, a couple of years ago when I had a, another episode, which was the last time I had one, I still feel like there's still a daily struggle and a daily reminder. Um, you know, it's, it's something that you live with. Um, you know, the scripture Paul's talked about is thorn in the flesh and like, you know, people, you, if you can learn another thing to take away is please have compassion on yourself, have compassion on other people. You have no idea what people are going through. And, and it, because I have a mental health diagnosis, I kind of get some built in compassion for people because I can just throw that card out and say, yeah, you know what? I'm bipolar. And they were like, oh, okay. But there's a lot of people that either don't have a diagnosis or who are just struggling with depression or anxiety or stress otherwise and don't have a diagnosis. And so, you know, just treat people like they're in trouble. And, you know, you may be right more often than not. The goal of Mental Illness and Me is to normalize the mental health conversation and help those who suffer feel less alone. Your support is critical to raise awareness and help as many people as possible. If this podcast resonates with you, please follow our Instagram account, Mental Illness and Me KT, our Facebook page, Mental Illness and Me, or leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. If you are interested in sharing your story, please email mentalillnessandmekt at gmail.com.